0: Hi, I'm David Latchman, the master of Birkbeck, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you um, to this inaugural lecture. As um, many of you will know, I do get to preside at a very significant number of inaugural lectures of highly talented people who have um, been appointed professors in Birkbeck. And when I get their CVs, I sort of usually look through and see, is there something that I can pick out um, as a particularly outstanding feature? Um, And when I did that to Carolyn's CV a day or so ago, I realized that actually, and this is really um, from the sort of sincerely, is that everything was an outstanding feature. Um, There was outstanding teaching, there was outstanding administration in running two major um, doctoral training programs, MRC and BBSRC, and of course there was outstanding research um, evinced across the board in terms of grants in terms of papers, and also, which I think is very important in terms um, of loyalty to Birkbeck. Having come here in 2004 on a David Phillips Award, I don't think we had to pay her even um, for the first four years, um, and after that moved on to the permanent staff. So she really is um, a Birkbeck person whose elevation to the professorship we celebrate. It's a great delight to invite her, to deliver her inaugural lecture, particularly as I saw on her CV, she also won the De Montfort Award for Scientific Communication. So I think we're in for a treat under the. Title: Microtubules and Microscopes: Studies of the Cytoskeleton in Health and Disease. Professor Carolyn Morse.
1: So uh, welcome, everyone, um, and thanks a lot for the introduction. Um, this is quite an unusual occasion, so I've been trying to think how to uh, keep you all engaged for. Well, not three hours, as it said on the invitation, by the way. Um, So uh, to try and uh, match the occasion, there are three main topics that I want to talk about today. Um, The first one is a bit to just try and briefly answer this question, how did I get to be here today? Um, And the second, which will be the major part of uh, what I'm going to talk about today, is our research. Um, we are interested in microtubules, so I'd like to um, tell you what they are, uh, why they're interesting and, why, um, and how we go about studying them. Um, and then, uh, finally, um, to say something about uh, women in science, which has uh, preoccup- been preoccupying a number of us uh, over the last few months. And um, so, um, in preparing for this lecture, I was uh, reminded uh, very strongly how lucky I am to be basically doing my dream job, um, so more or less for as long as I can um, remember knowing about lab work, I wanted to be a biomedical research scientist. Um, and I had the chance to uh, test drive lab life even while I was at school. And in fact, some of my first work experience was in the labs at the former Middlesex Hospital over on the far side of Tottenham Court Road before I was pulled down and into made into shishi restaurants um, so uh, the um, Moore's family archives provide some evidence of this early scientific enthusiasm um, in the form of a good luck card handmade by my little sister in a uh, preparation for my time in um, in in the lab and um, I'm uh, happy to say that uh, in over the summer I'm going to be able to return the favor because um my research group will be hosting a couple of uh, sixth form uh, students from my old school in Orpington, and uh, I hope that we can also um, inspire them to, to a love of uh, lab research. And so after school, as you heard, I um was able to go to uh, Oxford and to read um, biochemistry at University College um, with more lab experience nearly every summer. Um, and then I had the chance to do my PhD at the Laboratory of Molecular Biology in the lab of John Kendrick Jones. and. Um, I'm extremely grateful to Jake for the training I received uh, in his lab. I'm really thrilled that he's here this afternoon. He's just over there. (laughs) Uh, So you can uh, get the lowdown on uh, how, what a pain I was in the lab uh, when I was a PhD student later on. Um, And uh, I was also then very lucky uh, to join the lab of Ron Milligan at the Scripps Research Institute, uh, which is where I began working on microtubules, um, again with great training and supportive mentoring which is very, very important as as one develops as a scientist. Um, so this great uh, scientific and personal experience led me back to the UK. Um, And in starting my independent uh, research group, I was supported, um, as David mentioned, by a fellowship from the BBSRC. And um, it was actually pretty easy to conclude that I wanted to uh, come to Birkbeck to uh, begin my my independent research. First, uh, the really great uh, structural work that Helen Sable had been doing using cryoEM made me convinced that I wanted to apply these methods to my own work, Um, and Helen's also in the audience. Um, And uh, second, I had uh, met Nick Keat when I was a postdoc with Jake, and it seemed like a good idea to go somewhere where I already had a friend. Um, So I would really like to thank them both for their help and support since I arrived at Birkbeck. Um, And the final aspect of science at Birkbeck now concerns the very rich uh, scientific environment of our department and across the Institute of Structural and Molecular Biology with our colleagues at UCL, which is absolutely, as we all know, down to the scientific vision and great energy of of our head of department, Gabriel Waxman, who is in fact in New Orleans today. Um, So, the ISMB uh, provides an essential framework for the interdisciplinary research that we all do, Um, and I'm incredibly grateful to Gabriel for this. in my experience, um, uniquely collaborative environment. So, uh, with that uh, preamble, um, I'm going to tell you about microtubules. Um, so. We, my research team focuses on the components of the cytoskeleton called microtubules. So what are microtubules and why are they important? Um, there are very many ways in which one can study the uh, health and disease of the human body, um, including at the level of the whole body, uh, of the organs, of the cells within the organs, or the machinery within the individual cells. Um, and this is the scale of biology at which, find my pointer, where's it gone? This is the scale of biology at which we are operating. So the body would be over here, our organs are kind of over here, here are our cells and here are the proteins inside our cells. These are the machinery of our cells that drives all the functions that they have to perform in order for our cells cells to be functional. Um, and uh, the cytoskeleton of which one, of which microtubules are one type provide support and structure for our cells, and like the skeleton in our own bodies, they provide the context in which um, we operate and in which our cells operate. So microtubules themselves are around about 25 nanometers, so around about here um, in diameter, and the individual building blocks are about five nanometers. So we're definitely talking about nanoscale biology. Um, and uh, so, but in that context, whereabouts in the human cells would we be able to find the cytoskeleton? This is a classic uh, textbook diagram of, uh, of a human cell. Um, and happily for us, the, uh, the answer is that the cytoskeleton is everywhere. It's in every human cell, um, and it contributes to the functionality of all of the cells and all of the organs of our body. So this makes it very easy uh, for us to um, feel like our work has some importance, and it's also the stick with which I beat the undergraduates and convince them that they have to learn these things. Um, so, in studying uh, studying microtubules has important implications for many aspects of human health and disease. Um, first, as depicted here, microtubules, which are shown in this image in green, so here, all over in green, um, are the major components of the machinery of the, of, the, of the machinery of cell multiplication, which ensures that in the course of normal wear and tear in our bodies, replacement cells can be accurately generated. But but microtubules are also one of the uh, major components of uh, the cells in our brains and are essential for brain development and for mature brain function. Microtubules are also important for imparting um, shape and organization to the many other um, cells in our bodies with highly specialized functions, such as in our kidneys, our reproductive systems and our inner ears. And although these um, individual cells are uh, in different organs are extremely complex and with many components, understanding how microtubules function can shed light on a wide variety of human diseases and give clues as to their treatments. Um, So for example, um, many cancer drugs act by blocking the microtubule machinery and cell multiplication. Um, Defects in brain microtubules can cause uh, diseases from epilepsy to neurodegeneration. And while um, defective, uh, defective microtubules in other tissues can, can cause a range of um, other diseases. So uh, these are all uh, compelling reasons why uh, trying to understand the fundamentals of microtubule biology and, and how these, uh, mach- the components of the uh, cellular machinery work can shed light on uh, different aspects of um, human health and disease. Um, So in the context of trying to understand how uh, microtubules work, um, I'd like to to also emphasize that, of course, they um, they work. The, co- the context of a, of a cell is actually incredibly uh, complicated. There are very many other components. I have to confess than the microtubules. But we would also we would also like to understand how the microtubules work in that um, context. But um, our approach is to uh, take the machinery of the cell to pieces and uh, put then put it back together bit by bit, so we can gradually understand how all the components work together. Um, So, uh, microtubules, then, are uh, the molecular tubes um, along which very many uh, cellular components are organized and along which they move. And there are very many uh, microtubules even within a single cell, so this this could be just one microtubule. So, imagine how many microtubules go in to make up this uh, complex mitotic machinery. Um, and they, as I said before, they have a diameter of about 25 nanometers. Um, and uh, to, to put our work into context, I'd now like to explain a little bit in a little bit more detail about how microtubules um, are organized and how they're put together. Um, so the building blocks of the microtubule is, um, is I'm going to depict like this, and for the pros in the audience, this is the alpha beta tubulin heterodimer. Um, but in order for uh, these subunits to build microtubules, they have to to be activated, um, and in this context, again, this is uh, this is GTP. So this is activated by this by cellular fuel. Once they are activated, that means that they can start to make connections with each other to gradually build up the wall of the microtubule. So they can make both longitudinal, uh, top to bottom connections, and also side to side connections as well. So gradually, they uh, come together to form the. Um, the hollow cylindrical wall, which is the the classical microtubule. And because the subunits always go together head to tail, that means that um, one end of the microtubule is different than the other. So um, here you can see that the the dark green subunit is always found at one end, and then the light green is always at the top. And this has certain implications for the way in which microtubules grow and um, indeed are dynamic. So the really uh, remarkable thing about microtubules is that, the building process is just the start because once um, the wall of the microtubule is put together, they start to use up the fuel that allowed them to uh, build themselves in the first place. So. Um, What this means is that um, there starts to be part of the microtubule that's actually containing not the fuel but the waste products of, um, of the cellular energy. As long as there's enough subunits to keep adding to the ends of the microtubules, the microtubule will continue to grow. But um, once all the fuel is used up and there's only waste products left on the microtubule wall, they basically self-destruct. And it's only once the fuel is then renewed on the individual subunits that uh, the process of growth can begin again. So this makes microtubules extremely um, dynamic and uh, this can be visualized directly by um, using a microscope. So this is one of my experiments. Um, So I hope you can see here, we've got... They're quite... uh, Actually, I can turn the lights down. Um, So there's three microtubules here. So this one's kind of coming in from the top, um, top right here and this one is kind of steadily growing up in this direction as is this one. And so basically the purpose of this experiment is to say, at a particular level of uh, subunits or building blocks of this microtubule, how quickly do these microtubules grow? And then after a certain amount of time after they've used up all the fuel, how quickly do they shrink? So I think this one is probably in the process of shrinking. It was going up there and now it's coming back down again. So this is a, a sort of a direct demonstration of the dynamics um, that is absolutely essential for the function of, uh, of microtubules in the cell. Um, so um, so uh, basically um, what must, what goes up must come down again. Um, and um, so the, this happens, uh, this can happen within the context of the cell, um, but um, <laughs> a key role of uh, controlling microtubule dynamics in the cell, which allows the microtubule cytoskeleton to morph from this configuration, to this configuration, so it's completely, complete rearrangement according to what the cell needs to do, um, requires very precise control, um, not only from uh, the microtubules themselves, but from the um, components of the cellular machinery that that control and regulate them. Um, And this is is essentially what our group is very interested in. How is it that individual components of the uh, cellular machinery control this very um, dynamic um, skeleton? So um, this video here shows you very nicely um, how microtubules are um, uh, essentially involved in, uh, in cell multiplication. So what you can see here is that um, these cells, if you notice the way the clock goes, so it's, the, um, it's over quite a long uh, ex- period of the experiment. But every now and then these cells get to the point where they've got uh, two copies of their DNA, and they, which is shown in red, and they suddenly um, uh, split up with the help of the microtubules, which are shown in green. So this is going on in our bodies all the time. Um, and in order to be able to understand how this can happen, we would like to understand how it's uh, regulated. And also, of course, uh, if, I, if I can also remind you again that um, cancer is um, is a, a disease or a set of diseases of uncontrolled cell division, so if we can understand what the machinery of the, of the of cell multiplication is, we can also think about ways in which it can be blocked and ideally specifically blocked. This is uh, one of the major goals of um, microtubule um, uh, research at the moment um, so we, um, if I, just to remind you, we're interested in the nanoscale um, function of microtubules and how it is that their dynamics um, operate, um, so uh, we would like to study them at as a magnification as possible, which means uh, we need to use a very powerful microscope, and an electron microscope is, um, a, is the perfect uh, microscope for the job. Um, So they're very uh, powerful instruments that theoretically allows visualization of atoms. Um, uh, most typically, uh, one can see atoms in in inorganic materials. But uh, biological uh, samples present some uh, more radical challenges. And one problem is that biological samples need water, obviously, um, but this will immediately evaporate in the vacuum under which the electron microscope has to um, operate. So um, that means that for our experiments, we freeze our, uh, sample solid, so that the water in which they're encased doesn't evaporate in the microscope, and that's where the cryo uh, of cryo electron microscopy of, of our experiments comes from. Um, but what that does mean is that other, the otherwise um, dynamic samples that we're interested in are now captured in a static state. So we have to um, manipulate our samples so that they can be as informative as possible and interpret our data in the light of that uh, in the light of that knowledge and that experimental design. Um, then the other problem is that um, uh, the biological samples, microtubules, and any other biological sample is very sensitive to um, the beam of the electrons that we're using to take our picture. So in the most extreme case, it can be that you can, um, once you've taken one picture, your, um, your um, sample is more or less evaporated um, due to the power of the illumination. So our samples are very, um, are very fragile and we have to um, compensate for that f- by using a very weak um, illumination in our microscope, which means that um, our samples are typically quite hard to see. Um, so there are, um, and it's also the case that because they're very fragile and no matter how hard we try to take care of this, our samples also move around. Um, so. You might actually think that it's a bit crazy to even begin to do these kinds of experiments, but um, in fact, it's very successful, and uh, there are um, there's a very uh, great and emerging field of scientists who are undertaking these sorts of experiments, and the challenges are, are very great. Um, so, one, oh, and this is a, so this is a, a picture of microtubules, by, taken in, by cryo EM. So, just to um, uh, give you a sense of scale. These are individual microtubules um, and they're embedded in the solid ice ice that I was describing that um, preserves them in the vacuum of the electron microscope and you can just about make out, because of the the, uh, faintness of the image, the individual subunits. You have to squint a little bit and love the microtubules enough to be able to see that um, but uh, through the um, through the computational analysis that we do with our um, with our um, with our images we can start to extract more and more information um, from them so um, one of the real pleasures of being a research team leader is the people who join the team to share scientific interests and discoveries and who are basically the people who generate the data and analyze the data and lead to all the discoveries that we I then come up and talk about. Um, so I've had a lot of really wonderful people in my group who have made um, important and interesting contributions to our research progress and who have taught me a lot about being a scientist and a boss. Um, so. Uh, this is uh, some alumni, and this is the current gang, several of whom are in the audience, so you can um, collar them afterwards and get the uh, lowdown. Um, but I, I debated a lot about um, the, the extent to which I could share with you all of the beautiful work that they do, and um, it would really be a lot, and there would be separate lectures on everything. Um, so in the end, I decided to pick just one of the uh, pieces of work that I thought think has really changed the conversation about how we think about microtubules, um, and maybe might change the textbooks one day. Who knows? Um, so I've already described to you um, the importance of uh, microtubule ends, um, and this was a project that was done by uh, Frank in collaboration with our, um, uh, our our collaborators at the London. London Research Institute, uh, which will soon join the Crick Institute, and they were asking questions about um, a group of proteins called end-binding proteins. Um, And uh, they wanted to know how they worked, essentially. So um, for more than a decade, uh, there's been a group of proteins that perform this very uh, amazing behavior in cells. So um, if I can just describe what's uh, being shown here, in, this is the edge of a cell, and the microtubules are growing in red. And these, um, these this group of proteins that undertakes this behaviour, are shown in green. So what you can see is as the microtubules grow out, in, basically in this direction, there's a little um, dot of green that grows on the, on the end of the, with the end of the microtubule. But the moment the microtubule stops growing, they fall off. Um, so this is um, quite a, an unusual type of behaviour. Um, these proteins are, are important in um, translating uh, the uh, the dynamics of the microtubules to the other contents of the cell, um, and uh, so understanding how it was that they were performing this uh, dynamic function was a real, a very big question in the field, um, and. And by understanding how these proteins worked, we also thought we could learn something about how um, the the fundamentals of the microtubule dynamics themselves, what is it about the microtubule that, um, that that these proteins can recognize. Um, so, um, but in actual fact, dissecting that behavior was pretty hard in the context of the cell, because as I mentioned, there's hundreds, if not thousands, of proteins in the cellular soup that's surrounding these microtubules, so how do you figure out who's doing what and what's important. So a really uh, major advance was made when our collaborators, Thomas, um, was able to reproduce this behavior, essentially in a test tube, just with a very small number of components. So here you can see his experiment. So you've basically got the same situation again, except all you've got, you know, all you've got here is the microtubules and the the subunits from which they're gonna be built the GTP fuel that's going to allow them to grow and subsequently cause them to shrink. And then this family of uh, particular factors within the cell called EBs, end binding proteins, that specifically uh, recognize only the growing ends of microtubules. So this means that we can now pinpoint this behavior to just this group of proteins, um, which is a very um, powerful uh, uh, way to begin to dissect what's actually going on in this experiment. So, obviously, we uh, we together with Thomas immediately thought that um, studying these proteins on the microtubules by cryoEM would be a great way to try and address this. But the problem is that, of course, we're looking at something very dynamic, and um, as I mentioned, the cryoEM experiments mean that you can only capture snapshots, and you'd really like to have a a collection of microtubules that are basically the same, which would be very hard in this situation. So one thing that we do know about the ends of the microtubules is that their fuel status can uh, vary with time, and in fact that drives the dynamics. And since we know the end binding proteins were somehow sensing the dynamics at the end of the microtubule, we thought this this could be a good uh, way in which they were actually uh, behaving. So, if you remember, this is, these are snapshots from the uh, movie that I showed, was showing you earlier, and um, these are, this would be an individual microtubule, and it's the green thing that we're interested in. And you can see that it changes a lot over time, and again, this, this dynamic type of uh, sample is not so good for the kinds of experiments the, that we want to do. But um, what Thomas was able to do was uh, use a, a modified kind of uh, cellular fuel and capture a microtubule completely covered by the end binding proteins that we were interested in. So if you compare, this is basically the same protein, but the microtubules have been grown in a slightly different way. So instead of little blobs of green, you basically see an increasing amount of green with the, the feeling that the, there's lots and lots of green protein that we should be able to then work out how it's working. So. Um, this uh, this, uh, sam- this microtubules sample with the modified kind of fuel um, was a perfect sample for cryo-EM and this was what Frank was looking at and uh, with a sufficient number of images, he was able to determine where on the microtubule the n binding protein was uh, sitting. so uh, let me just talk you through his uh, data so here 's a relatively um, low uh, Low-level uh, view of his um, of his structure, and what's shown here is a single microtubule viewed from two different sides. And in in um, in gray are the uh, individual tubulin uh, dimers, and in green is the uh, the the extra um, uh, density that corresponds to the end-binding protein that had been added to the experiment. So this. Um, this is already a very interesting place for, the, uh, for a microtubule binding protein to bind um, because uh, there's some uh, sensitivity to the type of uh, microtubule that has been grown. Um, and at higher resolution, um, we can see that it binds at the corner of four of the building blocks of the microtubule. Um, and what that already tells us, in fact, is that although the end binding proteins look by light microscopy, like they might bind at the very end of the microtubule. In actual fact, they can't bind at the very end because their binding site doesn't exist. They have to have four of the building blocks in um, existence uh, for them to be able to interact with the microtubule lattice. So this already sort of um, tells you that the more you learn about the way a particular factor in a cell binds, sometimes the historical names that it's um, acquired along the way don't necessarily Tell you in fact how it works, um, but what was also uh, very exciting about this binding site was how close it was sitting to the uh, essentially the engine of the microtubule. So this is um, this is the schematic of um, of where the end uh, binding protein was binding, and this is another view through a slice through the microtubule. And so you can h- see here, this is the green density that corresponds to the N binding protein. And here is basically the engine of the microtubule. And um, the N binding protein sits immediately next door to it. So it's in a perfect place for it to be able to sense the fuel status of the microtubule. And in fact, that tells us a bit how, um, how the microtubule uses it f- its fuel as well. So in, in, in finding out how the N binding proteins work, We've also um, learned a little bit about how uh, the microtubules um, uh, exhibit their, um, their own dynamics. So this was was already a very satisfying um, result, Um, uh, and um, it's allowed us to uh, conclude a number of things about what the role of N binding proteins might be, for example, in the context of the the cell multiplication um, machinery. So we know that N binding proteins are important in guiding dynamic microtubules to find chromosomes during cell division. So we can now have a bit more of an idea of how that might work. Um, And we also, uh, this result also allows us to build on the fact that we know that um, end binding proteins bring very many other cellular factors from the um, multiplication machinery to the growing ends of microtubules. So looking ahead, we would like to understand how those, um, those interaction partners are brought uh, to the dynamic microtubules and um, how they, we look forward to learning how, how they modify that uh, behavior because there's certainly some evidence that that's what they do um, so so as I said the, we were pretty pleased with this structure we thought it told us a lot um, and uh, uh, yes we um we um, yeah we learned a lot from from looking at it, but um it didn't provide us with quite as much information as we might have liked. Um, And so, for example, you can see this is a a close-up of just the N binding protein itself. So you can see that you can you can see the sort of general outline of the individual um, components of the microtubule. But you remember I said that the electron, in the electron microscope can, in principle, you can see atoms. And there's definitely no hint of atoms in this, uh, in this um, result. Um, and this is, a, to some extent, arises from the inherent challenges of cryo that I was um, describing earlier. Um, so some aspects of our experimental system, so for example, that the samples are frozen and the samples are fragile, those can't really be changed, but there are some uh, experimental <coughs> modifications that can um, help us to get better in terms of um, the types of information that we collect in our experiments. Um, and it's these, uh, this, uh, this modification in the way in which we take our images, which is leading to what's being called a resolution revolution um, in cryoEM. Um, and I'd like to explain just a little bit about why that's very exciting. Um, and it's come about because of the availability um, of highly improved imaging devices, they're called direct electron detectors, um, we're very lucky to have several here. Um, and so we know firsthand that how important they can be for uh, really enhancing the quality of the images that we uh, can take. So as I mentioned before, and as I showed you in that image, the, the cryo-EM, pictures that we take are inherently um, low in contrast. Um, And uh, what these uh, new uh, detectors allow us to do is um, collect better quality data about otherwise very noisy um, images. And the second exciting thing about the detectors is that the rate at which the images are collected means that you, instead of collecting snapshots of rather blurry uh, moving samples, we can collect movies in which the uh, individual frames can then be realigned so that the movement of the sample is effectively corrected. Um, so altogether, this has, a, has led to a really dramatic improvement in the information that we can gather from these experiments. Um, so that's all well and good if you're an, EM geek, but so what? Um, what do we mean when we talk about resolution? So here is a slice uh, through a part of the wall of the microtubule at relatively low resolution. So you can see the basic shape. You have a sense of the subunits, um, but you don't get very much more information than that. This might be enough for your um, experiment, in fact, but if you're interested in more detail, the fundamentals of the machinery, you want more information. So this is the same view of the the wall of the microtubule but at so-called higher resolution. So you start to see a little bit of the bumps and the contours of the uh, individual components of the building blocks. And this starts to provide much more information about the things that might, for example, be uh, changing during microtubule dynamics. Finally, if you 're at the super high resolution, you can start to see the individual atoms and the reasons why the reason why seeing individual atoms in proteins can be very important is that we can then start to think about how drugs interact with them and um, for a long time, uh, cryem was not the method of choice for looking at drugs and their interacting partners. But now it really seriously is. And so um, this is a hugely exciting time to be an electron microscopist. Um, with the dramatic uh, improvement in the overall quality of the images that we collect, um, we can take the individual components of our cell division machinery and start to put them back together again to understand how together they work to... Um, Ensure accurate sharing of chromosomes uh, between the cells of our body, for example. Um, and this will also allow us to build up a picture of how the engine can malfunction in disease and how such malfunctions can be fixed. So um, in the final uh, few minutes, I uh, wanted to uh, swap to something completely different, something at a much uh, more macro scale. Um, so. Um, I'm a woman in science, and um, the representation and uh, promotion of women in science at Birkbeck has been an increasing focus of uh, me and a number of my colleagues, um, I'm incredibly grateful to my parents that for only ever being encouraging of my pursuit of a career in science. And this was true um, when I was a PhD student and a postdoc, but beyond the training phases of my career, a general sense of something more complicated began to emerge. Um, so it's, it's a potentially divisive topic, you know, um, women can have it all, women can't have it all, women can't do science, women can do science, and anyway, it's the 21st century, so why are we even talking about this? And this is actually a good question. Um, we are definitely are still talking about it, but why? Um so across the UK in biological sciences, women make up around 60% of the undergraduate population, 65% of the postgraduate population, but only around 40% of the academics overall, and just 25% of the professors. Having said that, I should also say that the Department of Biological Sciences at Birkbeck is very unusual in that context because we're lucky, for example, that the majority of professors are women. So this is something quite um, unique to experience in the sector. And nevertheless, um, underrepresentation of women and minorities in general um, persists in leadership positions across society. But um, society has changed a lot in the last few decades, and the importance of equality is increasingly part of the conversation. So, um, for example, um, there's, uh, there's evidence that in Fortune 500 companies with more female directors, that those companies outperform those with fewer, implying some, I suppose, some kind of financial incentive for addressing the inequality um the the uh the so-called leaky pipeline also one could argue represents a loss of a talent and of investment in training in those um women and it has also been said that uh, both men and women benefit from good practice for example in recruitment and retention but women are adversely affected in bad practice more than men so with an increasing awareness and discussion um, perhaps change will come. Um, and in fact, there are numerous studies that address this question, but I wanted to share some data from a study cited by the European Molecular Biology Organization. So um, this is the study, this is a bit of a mouthful, um, but basically what the authors did was take real data about academic staff in a research university at the US. in the US. And they also um, took the rates at which the staff, um, which the men and women on the academic staff arrive and leave for various reasons. Um, And and they asked, um, what happens if these trends continue? Or if we were to modify these rates of arrival, departure, what happens? And they uh, modeled the proportion of men and women on the academic staff over the course of 100 years into the future and compared these numbers with the numbers of men and women in the pool of potential applicants um, for these academic positions, which is essentially the people who would be applying for the jobs um, uh, if they were. Able to, so this is actually a bit uh, complicated. But since this is my inaugural, and uh, David told me I could say what I wanted, um, maybe I can boil it. Maybe I can boil it down to this. So with these data and with this model, with all the caveats that are included, um, my question is: uh, Can I expect gender equality before I retire? Um, so let's say that's uh, 25 years. So. Um, I'm not going to go through all the data, but I've highlighted here what happens in the approach um, if the hope for the best approach is taken, and the rates of recruitment, retention and attrition stay the same, and the answer is that even after 100 years, equality is never reached, nor is the percentage of women in the pool of job applicants ever reached, essentially because the rates of attrition for women are too high. But, for example, um, if all the rates of recruitment and retention are, and attrition are equal for both genders, then. Um then um, equality is reached after 60 years, and it takes only 20 years for the proportion of gender on the faculty to equal the proportions in the pool of applicants. So this study absolutely doesn't talk about how one would achieve that, and this is a, this is an incredibly complicated question, but it does say that change can happen. And um, by the way, I just wanted to point out that this top line here is what happens in the model if only women are recruited. And this, um, (laughs) um, and uh, the authors are very quick to point out that this would probably be uh, neither desirable nor nor legal, Um, but it sort of addresses the point that, um, or the idea that uh, action by large organisations will only ever be glacially slow, um, but in actual fact, if you only appoint women, you get to the pool um, after less than ten years, and you get to equality soon after that. So, um, with this uh, with this idea in hand, um, and lots of motivation for lots of other different reasons. Um, uh, in Birkbeck as a whole, and the individual science departments have been uh, participating in the national um, Athena Swan scheme, which aims to form- formalise the recognition of advancement of gender equality, with the goal of uh, representation, progression, and success for all. So in The department we've been grappling with this in this quite gnarly problem in a variety of different ways um, but focusing, for example, on recruitment of academic staff, uh, career development of our postdocs and improving communication within departments. So um, we keep our fingers crossed that we're going to we're going in the right direction. But um, I would uh, like to salute everyone who's been involved in this challenging and important work because. Really, it's very hard, and as you can probably tell, it's pretty different from studying microtubules by cryo-EM, so it presents some challenges. Um, So that was where I was going to leave it, in fact. Um, I've sort of uh, told you some things about me, I guess, and uh, some uh, things about why why I love science, and I'm very happy to be here telling you about it. Um, And uh, yeah, that's about it, but I have to um, also, Again, re acknowledge the, the members of my group who really are, it's just a it's really great group at the moment. I'm very excited about all the work that we're doing, so thank you very much to them. Um, our collaborators are incredibly important um, in uh, building out the stories that we, um, we make from our cryo EM data and putting it in a larger context. And I must also uh, very much um, acknowledge the funders of my work, um, which means that we can do this. Uh, these studies, and um, thank you very much for your attention.
2: It's my pleasure to be able to give the vote of thanks, and as usual, Carolyn has made my job much easier. First, by introducing me. I was Nick Keep. I was the guy with slightly darker hair on one of the earlier slides. I've known Carolyn for a very long time, as she said. I came as a post to Jake Kendrick's Jones Lab at the MRC shortly after she started her PhD. and We had a great couple of years while I was there doing some really interesting science and having, having a, a really good time. That was probably the most enjoyable part of my, my scientific career. Uh, Carolyn, even back then, was clearly going to be a very good scientist. She, she had all the right attitudes. She had all the, the right intelligence. She had all the right dedication and it was very clear that she was going to be a success, and I think we've seen that today. So so, Carolyn's science has always been excellent, but she's, as a colleague, she's been much more than that. She's been able to bring this Athena-Swan process forward. It was Carolyn who first mentioned Athena-Swan to me. At that point, HR said we couldn't possibly support it, and it was a couple of years before we were able to to make a start on the process. It's not entirely clear whether HR weren't writing their, their first statement. It was very hard to get a lot of the what you'd think was normal da- data out of the system, and without Carolyn's perseverance and hard work, we would have never got our, our first application in and our first bo- award a few years ago. And I think what she's done there ha- has been transformative to the way we've thought about women in, in science at Birkbeck. So K- Carolyn's not just a great scientist, she's a great colleague, she's a great administrator, and the only thing that's holding you back from the drink is a final round of applause to thank her for all her her hard work and wish her success in the future.